Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what is Mike Time? Mike Time is a set of short stories that have happened throughout my lifetime, experiences of mine throughout my lifetime, that have taught me lessons that I hope will be of value to you. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, deliver advice that sharpens your focus, as well as providing expert information regarding real estate, finance, and market conditions. So, okay, so now what we're going to do, if it's okay, is we're going to go ahead and start the actual podcast part, okay? Okay. All right. So, Aggie Cortez, one of my favorite people in the world, thank you for joining us for the Mike Litton experience. You really are. You know that. I'm one of your biggest fans. So, I... One of the reasons why I wanted to do this, I wanted to meet you face-to-face, obviously, so I could give you a hug, but I also felt like that it was important that we get together and that we get your story out there. Your story, for me, is a is a testimonial in terms of what's happening in modern medicine and specifically what, you, what questions you need to be asking or people need to be asking uh, that they're probably not asking or probably don't, have, don't feel the confidence to do so, right? So if it's okay with you, well, you know that our podcast is all about everybody has a story mm-hmm. and our passion is to help them tell it. And what we believe and what we know, and it's already happening, by the way, we're all of three weeks old, just, just so you know, and we're already <laughs> starting to get feedback from people that they've been inspired and they've been motivated by the, by the life stories of the people that we're interviewing. So right. it's already starting to happen. We knew it would, but it's happening more significantly than we even dreamed of. Right. So, and that's part of why I wanted to make sure that, that people heard your story. So if it's okay with you, with your permission, we're going to start with the very beginning. We we'll start where you were born, and then we're just going to go all the way through to today. And we'll talk about everything that you want to talk about, you know, that's happening today. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So let's start off with where you were born. I was born in Eva, Hawaii. Awesome. Yep. So I, I was it. a local island girl. For the first time, is at seven, eight years of my life. Yeah. And when we moved here to California, I couldn't speak a lick of straight English. Oh. It was your pigeon English. It was the local style bra. Yeah. You know, local yeah. Hawaiian. Um, that's how I spoke. Nobody understood what I said. They thought I was foreign. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. By the way, just so you know, Hawaii is a state. <laughs> it is a state. And what was funny was the teachers didn't know what to do with me because they knew I was speaking English, but it wasn't the correct English. Right. It was a slang. It was the Hawaiian slang. So they sent me to English second language class, which meant I had to learn Spanish before I could learn English. Wow. So it was one of those things where I didn't understand why I was learning about los osos and los pajaritos and right. azul and, you know, just all the different things in, in Espanol. Yeah. So eventually, within two years, I was speaking straight English. I, I no longer had my slang. I was speaking straight English, but I did speak Spanish for two years. Oh, that's and awesome. It, and, and it's kind of mind boggling. It's like, how do you get from Hawaiian to Spanish to American English. Right. Sort of a circuitous route, right? <laughs> exactly. And I, I guess 
they had a method to it and it worked. So um, whenever I go home now, I still pick up the slang. If I'm around my family, I can speak the slang again. Yeah. But once I come back, it's like, oh yeah, that's not kind of how we speak here. So I got to speak straight English. Got to kick that back. (laughs) Exactly. Wow. So yeah, so we moved here and um, you and I went to school in junior high. Yep. That's where we met each other. Yeah, Lincoln Junior High. Yeah, Lincoln Junior High. And a lot of us actually grew up together mm-hmm. from that from that first meeting. Because I think we all blended from different schools. Yeah, and that's how we we knew each other. And off to high school. Yeah. And then college for some people. In my mm-hmm. case, I had two little ones by the time I was 20. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, you started um, early. That's cool. I started early. And you know, life goes on, you know, you learn, you live, you learn, you make your mistakes, you fall, stumble, get scraped up. Um, but eventually you get to this grown up stage mm-hmm. and you get to this grown up stage and you realize, wow, I've accomplished a lot, mm-hmm. not a whole lot. A lot of people have done more, but enough that I'm satisfied with, okay. you know, my soul is satisfied with its spirit and, and where I've been and how many falls it took to get straightened out to where I am now. Yeah. So who was the most influential person to you in your childhood? Hmm. Wow. I would have to say my uncles. Okay. My father passed away when I was relatively young. Okay. And I didn't really get to know him. I knew enough of him. But at seven, you don't really know your dad yet. He's just the guy that just kind of is around kind of thing and takes care of things. Um, so my uncles, I have several of them because my parents both came from big, large families. Oh. <laughs> so I had uncles everywhere, but they were the ones that kept me straight. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah, if my, if the mothers go crazy, the aunts go crazy with all kinds of the maniacal things that happen when the hens get together, yeah. the uncles would sit in the background and would just kind of Chill. whisper wisdom. Yeah. You, you know? Yeah. And tell you you can do the stupid things and nobody's gonna care and, <laughs> and no one's gonna ask you in a hundred years whether or not it hurt it was smart or you know it you were indifferent to it they right. wouldn't care they just they just wanted you to enjoy life yeah and I think that's what what I got from that Hawaiian spirit is it was never about timetables performance or being better than anybody anybody else it was are you enjoying yourself yeah. is this the life that you want? Yeah, kind of thing cool. and I, I think they taught me that life is by your design not by mm-hmm. anybody else's I love that that is really big that it's, is really know, big it was very influential in the fact that I kind of have lived my life that way yeah. where I didn't really follow the mold that was given to my parents their parents I followed my own path yeah and I think once you're you're you realize that a sense of freedom of not having to prove yourself to anyone else but to yourself right it's it's very freeing yeah it really is so that's really cool (laughs) so how many uncles did you have that was quite quite a few it sounds oh wow okay so my mother came from a family of seven siblings wow and i had i think there was three uncles there and then my dad had i'm gonna say two but you also adopted the other uncles like the 
the right. second uncles outside kind of thing. So in total, I probably had about 10 uncles. Wow. And they crew. were all varying ages. I had the old ones and the young ones. Yeah. So, and, and it kind of speaks to the fact that I've always hung around with boys. Yeah. And, and you know me, I've always hung out with the boys. Yep. I've never yep. really hung out with the girls because it was, it was, it was funny growing up that I, I enjoyed the girls only because, mm-hmm. you know, we did the makeup, the clothes, the whole, you know, tiger beat thing. Yeah. God, are we dating ourselves? Tiger yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I felt more comfortable with boys because it was a lot easier to get honesty out of them. There yeah. was no agenda. Yeah. Kind of thing where girls kind of they have that agenda, that weird kind of weirdness. And I'm gonna say that I took part in that too, because I am a girl. Yeah. But when I look at my life, it was so much easier to get along with the boys. Yeah. And that's because I had a bunch of uncles. Right. I got you. That was my influence. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh, that's so you. cool. It's like having your own board of directors, you know. That's really neat. So you have this sort of board of directors of 10 uncles, right? I mean, it's really cool, yes. deal, right? And yes. I just love this. And so so you so you have two kids by age 20. Okay. Uh-huh. So you got little ones running around. And what happens? So you you go to work raising them, right? What right. happens? So do you do you stay home with them? Do you go to work? What what happens at that point? Uh, you know, my mom stepped in. Okay. Mom stepped in and provided daycare. And at first, you know, she didn't like the idea of having a teenage mom at home. Oh. Or at least a teenage mom as a daughter altogether. Right. right. But once the kids were born, her heart turned. Oh, sure. She, she realized that. I can't be hard on her because these are my grandkids right. kind of thing. And and she had her little, uh, you know, moment where she finally realized that you cannot force your ideology on your daughter because your daughter's still going to do what she's going to do, which is have these kids right. and raise them and raise them well. Right. I'm not, I'm not going to make them suffer. I'm not going to you know, ensure that they have a life of servitude <laughs> to right. anybody. But um, she changed because my mother was very rigid in her philosophies and her beliefs. And it took the kids to break that. Yeah. And it was it was a nice change. But then, you know, as they got older, then the philosophies came back and we we kind of had to re rejigger a few things to kind of get around the rigidness again. Yeah. So do you be the enforcer or do you be the grandma? Which one do you want more? Exactly. Right. You have to decide. Yeah. Do you want a relationship with them or do you want them to turn their backs on you? Drive because away. Right. at the end of the day, you've got a free will daughter who who does things of her own volition. Yeah. And you don't think that's going to pass down to the next generation because I guarantee you it does. Yeah. <laughs> Just so we're clear. Just so, so we're clear. clear. <laughs> the one genetic thing that I'm going to pass down to them is I want them to think for themselves. Yeah. Kind That's of thing. Cool. So, and That's you know, cool. I've been lucky. I've been lucky, knock on wood. So mom steps in, mom helps, and then yes. you go to work, right? Yes. Okay. I start, I, I start my little career of, you know, let me just see if I like this or if I like that. I ended up being a clerk or a clerical person at a retailer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I kind of like this. I kind of like working in an office. I kind of like being around these machines and understanding accounting things, right. <laughs> you know, inventory and accounting things. Yeah. And I started to realize that I needed 
to step up every few years, yeah. step up my role, step up my thinking, step up my training, if you will. Okay. And every four years I switched up. I switched up from a retailer to an actual business from an really? actual business to a, a SME business, a small, medium sized business, right. then a medium sized business and a larger business and an right. extra large business to a conglomerate. Right. And then now I'm with the federal the biggest, government. The biggest business. The biggest then. one of all. <laughs> so I, I look at my accomplishments is when I jumped, I jumped to bigger things. Yeah. I didn't jump down to smaller things. I just kept jumping up. And I was fortunate in the fact that every role I ever took, I learned a few more things. Yeah. And took it with me. Learned yeah. a few more things. Took it with me. And since I had my kids so young, I didn't have the opportunity to go to college. I didn't have the time, yeah. but my 35 years in business basically yeah. was my college degree. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I also explained to my kids when they were going through the, do I go to college or do I go to trade school or do something else? What do I do? Mm -hmm. I said, at the end of the day, the degree is only going to define where you go. Right. It's not going to define the life you want. True. So, you have to decide on the kind of life you want. And then you go from there. You fill in the blanks. Right. Either work towards that or you train towards that. You learn towards that. Whatever you do, you just keep moving. Right. You don't plan on staying in step one and never moving. That's one not one foot in front of the other. Keep progressing. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. Well, that's more of that life by design thing. Exactly. Exactly. See, and, and unfortunately I've, I've watched many of our friends mm -hmm. get stuck in that hole. They get pigeonholed yeah. into an ideal that has not been very good to them, yeah. but it's what they had in their mind's eye expected of themselves. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 I, I don't agree. Yeah, I agree <laughs> with that. You know, I, I think everyone has their own destiny. And I think that you can guide someone, but at the end of the day, they have to live that life yeah. and they have to be happy with the choices that they made. And that's how, that's kind of the way I parented as well was I'm going to give you the choices. Here are your three choices. Which one's going to make the best sense for you? Right. I don't care what the cost is. As long as you know what is going to be the best decision for you. Right. And they went with that. So no, my kids were not raised on the same principles I was, which was very strict and structured and sterile right they were they were more feral <laughs> than anything else which wasn't bad it just allowed them to explore other opportunities well it that sounds like it sounds like you gave them some freedom yes i did i did within reason, I, right yeah exactly i didn't give them complete freedom right. but i gave them the freedom they needed yeah. And when we lived up north in Escondido, North Escondido, mm -hmm. <laughs> up off of Gopher Canyon back that way, yeah. I remember the first time my son and daughter saw the house. Mm -hmm. They sat there and they said, this is way out there, mom. There's no pizza hut. <laughs> there's no, there's no Kentucky fried. There's nowhere to get fast food. That's true. <laughs> I said, and they don't deliver guys. Yeah. Guess what? You're going to have to make your meals here oh. at home. Oh, what a shocker. Oh, uh, yeah. And they learned to sustain. They weren't they weren't like jumping on a bus to go into town to get junk food. They were literally at home making their meals and doing whatever it is they do. 
And then, so they were feral in the neighborhood in the sense that this is all they could go to because yeah. any anything else was too far. Yeah. And I, I think I think the way our parents were raised, where they were raised on farms or they were raised in those kind of industrial kind of living situations, they thought differently. Yeah. They they were they were a lot more feral than the kids today, which they're kind of in a box. Mm-hmm. I mean, the kids today are like Susie and Bobby have school at seven, um, whatever soccer at four, dinner at six, homework at seven, and, and it's so structured that they can't be kids. Yeah, but that's the expectation in today's society, and it's like they can't even think for themselves. <laughs> yeah, we used to go out. We used to go out, and we'd go out until mom called us for dinner, right? Or the or, light, the or, street lights would turn on. Dark. Yeah, or it's dark, right? Exactly. That was our so, that was our time. That was our expiration I, time. So that was yeah. our expiration time, and we didn't we didn't complain about the hose water that tasted like rubber when it was coming out, and you were thirsty, even though we you know we were kind of oh, I know that's a carcinogen, but I'm thirsty. I'm gonna yeah. drink it. Right. We're still here. We're still yeah, we, here. People. Somehow we survived, right? What's we survived all of that. So you know, I I worry about my grandkids' future. Yeah. I worry about, by the way, those are the prettiest grandkids on the planet. (laughs) And you know what? They're just like me. (laughs) I love that. I love that about them. (laughs) Uh, Like I said, the other one just goes, I'm going camping with her tonight. Tonight we're going camping. No, 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 we're not going camping. (laughs) We're going camping next month. Right. Exactly. But it, 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 I worry about our future as, as you know, people that, these kids aren't learning those critical life skills that we learned yeah. getting dirty, getting beat up, getting scraped up on the asphalt. They're not learning any, any of those things, like how to survive that kind of pain. That was something that when my, when our kids were growing up, that was something that I, that I was concerned about. And I still am, you know, I'm, I, um, I never, I never, we never made our kids do anything. Right. Mm-hmm. We, you know, if they wanted to do something, they could go do it. We wouldn't say mm-hmm. no to them. They right. could go do it, but they had to do it to our standard, right? Right. And I was probably more strict than you were as a parent, but I also was pretty loose when it came to, I didn't make them do anything in particular. So, I, I you know, they had to go to school. They had to get good grades, all that kind of thing. Yeah, but the basic when stuff. It came to, when it came to play, when it came uh-huh. to extracurricular stuff, when it came to that kind of stuff, we just, you know, we let them do whatever it was that they wanted to do. They just had to do it to our standard. You know, as long as right. they did that, they were fine. So, you know, the one thing that my kids stressed out about, and it, it is kind of, it kind of goes back to, I let them be themselves kind of people, yeah. was they always were nervous at big birthday parties. You know, the, you had those kids that had the big birthday parties where they invite all the kids in the class yeah. to those things. And they used to get anxiety. Why? And I go, why, why is that? I mean, why why are you having, because I don't like having that many people. They're very private people, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I said, well, you know, you're just going to go and bounce, do the bounce house and eat some cake and candy and, you know, run around with your friends. And they go, that's not our thing. Well, what do you want to do for your birthday? I just want to take a friend and go to Catalina. Or I want to take a friend and go to Magic Mountain. Wow. That's what you want for your birthday? Yeah. No birthday party? No. Wow. We just, we wanted 
private time with our friends to enjoy a place, a space, a thing, an adventure. So, so an experience. An experience. So my kids have always been the ones that wanted an experience over gifts. Oh, that is cool. They didn't, they never wanted, I mean, we did buy the Sega and the Nintendos and, you know, all that yeah. stuff. We did buy all that stuff, but they never really took to them like we thought they would. Oh. They wanted adventure. They wanted cool. experiences. They wanted to see the world, which they both have in their own way, right. kind of thing. But it made them a lot richer for that because they got the experience. I'm with they you. weren't stuck in a room with a remote control or a whatever thingy right. playing Mario Kart all day long. Right. They were outside getting dirty. <laughs> I love it. And I kind of like that. I was like, all right, you came back dirty. Okay, fine. Just put it in the laundry. <laughs> right. Getting scraped up a little, right? Exactly. And, I, you know, you just got to love it that they're very humbled by the fact that they've seen other parts of the world. Yeah. And they've seen that we kind of have it good here. Yeah. Even though people would say that we don't. No, we do. Yeah. Go, go travel to a foreign country and stay there for a little while and then tell me how bad we have it here. Okay. Exactly. And that's the I, one thing that kind of, I don't understand that about our society is yeah. that we've got it so bad. No, we no. don't. Yeah, it's true. You know, you, you, you don't understand. And, and it's yeah. kind of what, it brings back the notion that what are we teaching ourselves and what are we teaching our kids that we're yeah. superior? No, we're human. Just like the next person. Yeah. We're human, just like the next country. And that country might not have potable water i mean might not have drinkable water it's all potable right. water right. and that's not healthy right. and, and and so luckily my kids got to see that they got to see working on a farm you know working with wild animals they got to do those things which was really nice because it brought back that humble yeah. the humble pie that they need yeah yeah and i i told my kids growing up i said listen if i had my way i'd get i'd get you in a time machine and you'd go back to Oklahoma and you'd work on the farm for nine years like I did with my grandfather, right? So I told yeah. him, I said, listen, if you, if you ever even sound like you're privileged, you're spoiled, any of that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. I'm going to take you to a local horse ranch and you're going to muck out stalls for a while for free, right? And every time they'd have one of those moments, moments? <laughs> I'd ask them, you ready to go muck out some stalls, right? And they'd look to me and dad, What's in the stalls? What are we mucking out? And I explained it to them and they're like, oh no, 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 no. We don't want to have anything to do with that, right? <laughs> right? But it was, you know, it was one of those things where they needed to understand that they were having a better childhood by far than I had, right? Yep. And we can go to that humble place if we absolutely need to, right? We've, yes. got, we've got some humble pie we can serve up, okay? Exactly. Right? exactly. And, 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 you know, the, the irony is that you know, now that we're in this space where there's TikTok and reels and all this other craziness, and these kids are proving to me that your parents aren't watching you. Yeah. <laughs> your parents aren't guiding you. Your parents are, you know, go explain to your parents what you're doing because I guarantee you they're not going to appreciate it. Yeah, they're not paying but attention. They're not paying attention. Yeah. Um, that frightens me. And that's and one it, of the things, that's one of the things that COVID did, I think, is it it got parents to where they had to sit down. They had to listen in. They had to hear what their kids were being taught. 
and what their kids were up to and that kind of thing. And all of a sudden it was like the light went on and now you've got this whole movement of people, parents, right. And grandparents, true, you know, included, right. That are now paying attention. They're now, instead of trusting they're tra- they're trusting, but they're verifying, right? They're right. They're you know they're very very concerned, and they're paying attention to what they need to be paying attention to. So you know it's just like anything else, and we've had this conversation before. But you know if you look hard enough, you'll find positives anywhere, right? Oh, oh yeah, In situation Absolutely. you'll find positives. You just got to look hard enough, right? Yep. Yep. So yep. so the kids are grown and they're beautiful. You did a great job, by the way. Congratulations. Um, and the grandkids are, 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 I'm telling you, they're the prettiest grandkids I've ever seen. They're so, they're <laughs> so cool. Um, so, and I love the fact that they're just like you, because we need more, more people just like you in this world. Aww. So let's talk a little bit about, um, so, so a few years ago, you had a challenge with your health. Yes. Talk a little bit about sort of what led up to that, what sort of symptoms you were having, that kind of thing, because I really feel like that your story needs to get out there because people need to hear you. And and let me let me tell you real quick, the very first interview that we did for this podcast that now is three weeks old. I mean, we're, you know, we, we just we just had 150 listens, by the way, today. Um, so we're brand new, right? Uh, the very first interview we did was with one of the top economists in the nation. His name's Alan Nevin. And he became a good friend of mine. Um, on my previous radio shows, he was a regular and all that kind of thing. And um, uh-huh. I wanted him to be the first, the first guest uh, that we interviewed. And um, he was excited to do it. And and we we interviewed him about a new book that he has coming out that's going to be available next month called The Next Half Century. And what it talks about is just a, just in the last few years, over a billion people have gained internet access worldwide. Right. And in the next few years, over a billion people more will gain internet access. Right. And what he's saying from his book, what he's saying basically from the preview I have, is that as as we go forward, the United States is positioned better than any other country out there to help these 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 third world countries that have internet access now to help bring them from the third world to the second world level. And we're literally, you know, brighter days are ahead for us because we're going to be helping them do that. Right. Right. Uh, And I started a coaching company, just so you know, and and part of that is going to be to help that happen. Right. Help facilitate that. So one of the things that um, that I wanted to make sure that we did was I wanted to make sure that we got your story out to everybody that could hear it. Simply because I know, I absolutely know in my heart that there are people out there that are dealing with this kind of thing and Mm -hmm. hearing your story is going to help them. It'll help them with confidence in terms of talking to their physician. It'll help them with confidence in terms of listening to their body, because that's a big part of your story and, Mm -hmm. and asking questions, right? Asking more questions than is normal. Okay. Right. So tell us a little bit about what happened? You you started. Okay. What were your symptoms? How did this all go about? So back in 2017, right after we moved into this place, yeah. <laughs> right after we moved into this place, I started feeling some strange pains pains in my abdomen. Right. Couldn't really tell where it was. It was just in my abdomen, and it was strange in the fact that it only hurt when we went over railroad tracks. The vibration of the car would 
cause me pain, like gut-wrenching pain. And wow. I couldn't understand. I, was like, I just sat there going, what is wrong with me? What is going on? Yeah. And my husband just goes, get in the doctor's office. I go, yeah. uh, you know, it might be, it might be gastroenteritis. I'll just take some Tums in. It'll go away. I think we were all raised to self-medicate. Yeah. If, if it was just a little pain, take a little Tylenol, it'll, the pain will go away. Well, right. this went on for a couple of weeks. Right. And then by December, I finally went to go see the doctor and when I explained to him the location of the pain, which is right under my rib cage, right. he figured it was my heart. So oh. he ran an EKG. So he thought I, I had a silent stroke and I had it had lingered because it's been weeks since right. the initial onset. Okay. And so he took an EKG and his your heart is healthy. You got normal sinus rhythm. You've got, you know, all these things. He goes, Where is the pain exactly? And I said, just this part of my body. I, mm -hmm. I don't know what it is kind of thing. Right. And there were no symptoms up until the pain I felt going over the train tracks. Right. No other symptoms. I had no bleeding ears, no bleeding eyes, none, none of that. So he suggested, okay, well, let's go give you a CAT scan because you don't know what it is. It's not your heart. You've got normal sinus rhythm. Let's give you a CAT scan. Gotcha. Gave me a CAT scan, called me within 20 minutes of getting the report. He goes, we're sending you up for an MRI. I go, why? <laughs> he, goes, he goes, we need to know more about what's going on with your body. And I said, can you explain? He goes, I'm going to let the surgeon explain it to you. I go, what surgeon? And he said, you're going to have to get this surgically removed, either laparoscopy or full-blown surgery where we cut you open and get it removed. Wow. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, the term is polycystic liver disease. And he goes, polycystic liver disease by itself is not a danger because everyone has cysts, literally little polyps on their liver. Mm -hmm. You just happen to have one that's so enormous that we need second advice, you know, second, the second, um, what do you call it? Yeah. Opinion. Yeah. So I went to go get my MRI. They measured the heck of that, <laughs> heck out of that thing. Yeah. And obviously the medical profession is in metrics, not imperial. Right. So um, when we converted it down, it was basically nine inches by 17 inches round and six inches deep. Wow. It was the cyst was calculated to have 1.91 liters of fluid so did, it was did, oh go ahead so well no, i'm just i'm just curious so the only symptom you had was the pain going over the the train tracks because it vibrated the car that's yes it. that was it that okay. was the only thing so no, no no nothing else nothing else other than i couldn't touch my toes which i thought was normal because i was you know a little bit chubbier <laughs> i couldn't touch my toes but I thought that was a result of me having a lot of excess body weight in the center. Yeah. You know, you, you can't touch your toes typically when you've got a lot of excess body weight. Right. I've been so, there. <laughs> you know that feeling. Yeah. So, um, 162 pounds ago. Yeah. Yeah. You did great. <laughs> um, I, I did talk to the surgeon. The surgeon took a look at the MRIs and he, he said, that is the largest cyst I've seen. In quite a number of years. Right. He goes, largest. He goes, they're usually maybe three, four inches wide or this size. 
is in they don't have the volume, the liquid volume that you have. Did they so ever tell you where the pain choices. was coming from? He well, is basically the root of the cyst was yanking on my liver. So every time my whole entire internal organs vibrated, everything vibrated and was pulling on that root that mm. was from the cyst. Like a nerve. Kind so it's like a tr like a nerve. Like if there's yeah. nerves in that cyst that was yanking every time I moved. Oh and God. I just said, well, how does this happen? How, you know, and he said, well, we're going to have to a either surgically remove it, which I don't think we can do because it's, it's the root itself is located on the backside of your liver. And, or two, we pop, we laparoscopically go in and drain it hmm. and try to remove as much fluid as we possibly can. And we let you drain it for another three weeks. Cause there's going to be buildup that needs to vacate your body. Right. And that's the only way it's going to come out or three, there's this new method that hasn't been tried yet, but they are experimenting with it called um, interventional radiology, which is basically they x-ray your body. They look at where all your organs are and decide where to attack and try to get this thing out. He goes, the problem is with that is you would have to take betadine internally. You like put it into your liver for three weeks every single day. Wow. So it can it so it can sclerose the walls of the cyst. So you inject I'm not recommending yeah, inject it into a valve that's attached to your liver oh, <laughs> for three weeks. And I oh, just sat there God. going, I'm not ready to go there. I, I don't like betadine. I don't like the idea of injecting myself with betadine because as far right. as I'm concerned, it's an antiseptic for the outer part of your body. Right. Not last I checked. Yeah, last I yeah, checked. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not willing to go there. So that's when the um, surgeon said, okay, well then let's laparoscopically at least alleviate the pressure, take the the the, um, the amniotic sac is what I called it. I said, my alien baby, get my alien baby out because right. it was basically an amniotic sac of oh, fluid. So um, th that took care of it in 2017. So okay. 2018, I was healed up. Everything was fine. They took an X-ray. The pathologist report finally came back. <laughs> in the drum roll please because yeah. this was a shocker he 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 did finalize that the entire volume count was 1.9185 liters so if oh. you can imagine a coke bottle a two Ooh. liter coke bottle was basically in my cavity my yeah. body cavity oh my and we finally realized this is why i had bladder problems like yeah. i could never hold my water i always right. had to find a bathroom every 20 to 30 minutes because it's pressure. just pushing yeah. down on all my internal organs and the pathologist study said i had had it since in utero so from the moment of conception i had had it <laughs> and wow. it's like what do you mean i had it <laughs> and, the, and the surgeon explained to me that when i was in utero that one cyst that was on my liver in development had decided to be an anomaly, a genetic anomaly, hmm. because it does not match anything else around your liver. This one cyst decided to grow abnormally. Wow. So when they did go in and drain it, the surgeon had taken the extra flap once they drained it out. Right. wrapped it around my liver just like you would sanitize dirt you put plastic over it so no weeds could grow that sort of thing so um he did that in 2018 2017 2018 
And he goes, okay, done. He's like, all right. And he goes, you may need to come back though. I've got a feeling this sucker is going to come back. I said, well, I still have like 30 years left on this earth. I'm hoping it's not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Right. Yeah. And come to July of 22 last year. Right. Go over the train tracks again. No. Immense pain immense pain this time worse pain than from before from what i can recall oh my gosh this time they sent me to the liver specialist this in is four years later four years later four and a half four and a half five years later okay they sent me to the liver specialist in la jolla and i said why do i need to see a liver specialist they said you might need a brand new liver oh, no. i said why would i need a brand new liver because all reports all the testing that i did suggested that i had a finely healthy fine-tuned liver i just had this one cyst right i had no sclerosing or no cirrhosis i had no fatty liver i wasn't i wasn't eating wrong i was eating right every every the skin around my liver was healthy that sort of thing and the liver specialist said basically we can't operate on your cyst and I said, why is that? And, you know, I thought the liver is regenerative. It grows back kind of yeah, thing. That's what I've heard. She said, the problem is the cyst itself, the root of the cyst is literally embedded on the backside of your rib cage. So in order to get there, we would have to remove everything to get out of its way so we can get to it. Or we'd have to break your rib bones in the back to get to it so it, it was pretty risky stuff yeah sounds like it. and i just i just sat there going nah don't like that idea <laughs> i don't like my options here right i don't like yeah he's like can we come up with other options she goes well is it causing you pain right now well, today it's not causing me pain but it comes and goes depending on the day of the week and which you know speed bumps i hit right kind of thing. right and which railroad um, tracks you over exactly so that's when she sat down and said well you have these other two choices, which is we can do what we did in 2017, right. drain it and right. try all over again. Or we do the interventional radiology method, which was put betadine into your liver. Ugh. And I, I literally had a hard time with that one because I, I just couldn't Ugh. see putting betadine in a tube that goes into my liver and letting it sit for a couple hours. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. So I just said, no, let's just go back to square one. We'll take care of it that way. If I have to come back in five years, at least I'm only out for three weeks where I can't do anything. Right. And we'll go there. Right. So we agreed and we scheduled the uh, the procedure end of March this year. And they sent me on my merry way. And I had a drain attached to my liver, a mm -hmm. catheter, if you will, yeah. just to you know, suck out whatever was left because they were able to pull 1.89 liters of fluid the second time. My goodness and I said, well, maybe my body just said, hey, there's this huge space. It just wants to fill up again, yeah. <laughs> like a water balloon. Um, my surgeon basically said, you know, just be careful. Just, you know, you've got a pigtail catheter in your right. liver to drain what's left. Right. So, okay, fine. About a week and a half into just dealing with the draining part, I accidentally dropped the bulb, which was on the end of the catheter. I was in the shower. It slipped out of my hands. And unbeknownst to me, it had dislodged the catheter. Oh. The catheter itself landed in the middle of my abdomen. 
So it was laying amongst my colon, my intestinal organs, all of that stuff. And it's, right. it's all lubricated by just, you know, saline, right. salt water. Your, right. your body is complete salt water on the inside. I didn't know it. So about the day before I was supposed to see my surgeon to remove the catheter, I had gotten so sick. It was painful to move. I couldn't move. My husband threw me in the car and took me to emergency. At that point, the surgeon took a look at a CAT scan that they had done while I was there and said, do you have a DNR? I said, what? Yeah. I said, can't you just give me some amoxicillin to clear up the bacteria? I mean, I'm fine with just taking a pill and go. Right. And he said, the problem that we have is your white blood cell count is over 21,000. Standard blood, standard blood count, white blood cell count is 10,000. Right. He goes, that's normal. 21,000 is double. He goes, you're fighting an infection you don't know you have. Right. So we can't let you go until it comes down. So they admitted you. I said, what do you mean? You can't let me go. <laughs> he said, you're not going home. You're staying wow. in the hospital. I didn't have a choice at that point. Yeah. I mean- I, I had to stay. So the longer I stayed, the more I understood what was happening. So they took the catheter out and they said, do you see this fluid? It's not your normal fluid that was coming out of your liver. It was the fluid from your abdomen. Hmm. It wasn't coming from your bladder or anywhere else. It's just the fluid that lubricates your entire internal organs. Right. That's what you were draining. You were becoming extremely dehydrated yeah. at the same time. Yeah. You, I couldn't drink enough water to keep me hydrated. And I didn't know that's the after effects of that. Right. And um, they gave me a bunch, it pumped me full of antibiotics. Right. Until they could get my blood, my white blood cell count down. So that took three and a half days, I believe. So you were in, in the, the hospital for three and a half days? Three and a half days because they were not going to release me until I got my white blood cell count down. At gotcha. this point, I didn't have an infection. But they decided that they would put another tube in me to drain what was left because right. they felt that there was still probably some kind of infectious things in there. Let's go ahead and drain it out and fix this. Right. And at that point, I just kind of said, I resolved myself to the fact that I'm going to let the professionals handle this because I have no idea what's going on with my internal organs. Um. They put in a new catheter and about two weeks later, they said, okay, there's nothing else coming out. We'll go ahead and pull this catheter out, but you'll come back here if it starts to give you trouble again. I said, oh no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'm eternal optimist that I am. I'm like, right. I'm not coming back. Right. <laughs> I don't want to come back. Right. I've been in this place too much. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So about three weeks out, my doc, I had an appointment with my regular primary care and this is, this is probably going to make a lot of people laugh, but I, uh, I said to her, I've been sleeping with ice packs. And she goes, why are you sleeping with ice packs? I go, I think I'm going through the change. She goes, Aggie, that ship has sailed. You are not going through the change anymore. Gosh. <laughs> I said, are you sure? Cause I don't think I ever had it. And I'm like sleeping with ice packs because I'm so hot Yeah. Kind at night. I can't sleep. Yeah. And she goes, Aggie. I've been your doctor for over 15 years. You are not going through the change again. She goes, you already went through it. She goes, I'm ordering more blood tests. I was like, oh God, I hate when they order more blood tests. I really do. And she ordered more blood tests. White blood cell count through the roof again, Mm. 18,000. And she called me the next morning and she said, check yourself in to urgent care or emergency immediately. 
Yeah. I said, can it wait till next week? <laughs> she said, no, you're going. You're yeah. going now. Um, long story short, I get in there and the second surgeon comes up and asks me if I have a DNR. And he said, for God's sake, just give me some antibiotics. I can go. Right. And he says, I know you're mentally clear. He goes, but your body's not. Wow. You cannot leave this hospital until we figure out what is causing this infection. You have an infection. Yeah. I said, what kind of infection? At this point, I'm thinking, I don't know what kind of infection I've got. Right. Um, they put in another catheter and they drained it. The first night was almost a cup of infect infected mucus gook out of the liver. <sighs> it had come back with a vengeance. And this time it was literally strep. Uh, it was strep. Yeah. It had gotten into my liver. Strep had gotten into my liver. Oh my gosh. And so we drained it for a day and a half and it was the color of frappuccino. You know, the cold drinks. Yeah. That was the color of the muck that was coming out of my body. So they knew that I was severely infected. They sent me to infectious disease because they didn't know how I got it. They knew right. it had gotten in my liver. They knew that I was going to need much more than over-the-counter antibiotics that they could right. provide. Yeah. And I said, what does that mean? What does that mean that I can't take a pill like normal? And they said, uh, we're going to put a pick line. I said, a pick line? You know, most cancer patients have pick lines to get their chemotherapy to their heart. Mm -hmm. And she goes, that's exactly what we're going to do, except we're going to use that to distribute the, um, the antibiotics that you have to take for six weeks. I said, oh, my gosh. And you're going to have to do it at home by yourself. I said, what? <laughs> and at this point, I I am giggling because I'm not devastated by the fact because I know that the human body is such an un unpredictable thing that it yeah. does weird things. Yeah. And you could take care and and be the, the person that does everything the doctor says and something else will go sideways. Yeah. So I wasn't fearful. I was more nervous with the expectation that I would distribute my own medication right? kind of thing. It was like, you trust me with syringes to put right. stuff in my body. Right. I, okay. Okay. Fine. I, I get it. I, I'm a strong person. I can do this. Yep. Um, so the nurse comes in with the pick line and this was a procedure I had never seen in my life. Mm -hmm. She puts this metal plate right here on my chest and then she starts a needle she goes i'm putting the cadillac of iv infusions into your body i said the cadillac I said, don't you mean a bugatti or you know, i would just be facetious you have a ferrari version and you have a ferrari version a lambo right. version right. a cadillac really oh. <laughs> she just, just kind of laughed and and she guided that thread through one of my veins straight to my heart oh. she goes the end of this catheter is in your heart Wow. And I just sat there and I thought to myself, this medical miracle stuff. I mean, yeah. we're eons away from when we were kids yeah. where they would just bandage you up and send you home. I was expecting that. No, 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 no. This is like space age stuff. Yeah. And uh, they took me into interventional radiology when, when they went to go look at all my parts that basically was wired up. And it was interesting to see a 70 inch flat screen TV on the wall and watching my internal organs function. 
You could see my heart beating, my lungs inflating, and you could see me shifting my weight on the table. And it, it was the most surreal thing I've ever seen. It wasn't black and white. And you could see where the wires were, where my catheter ended, where the pigtail was, where my liver was, everything. Wow. And I thought to myself, I feel like I'm on Star Trek yeah. <laughs> or something. Like This is space age stuff. Yeah. But I learned from the staff there that Intervention, interventional radiology is the next step in medical technology because you're not having to open somebody up. Right. You're not having to have 25 people stand around while you're fixing, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? An, an internal organ, whatever it is. You can see it and you can go in laparoscopically and repair it through endoscopy. Yeah. And it was just Crazy amazing how they can do to that me. Now. They can do that, and they, and with minimal um, um, anesthetics. Yeah. They just they just put anesthetics on the outside yeah. of where they're going to cut, and the rest of it, your body doesn't have any other pain threads in its internal organs, so it doesn't feel anything. It's just on the outside. Mm. So they can go in with these sticks and <laughs> kind of do these things. Um, needless to say. Um, I was given instruction to put betadine into my liver for six solid weeks every day for two hours a day. And I, I guess I'm one of the few people on this planet that can actually taste the medication through my liver. Because I had complained the following week for my checkup. And I said, I could taste the betadine. And I really don't like it. Can you give me something else? Can you give me some of the cherry flavor? I said, can you give me something else? I said, they said, well, we can give you um, ethanol, which is pure alcohol. <laughs> and they said, but you would have to have somebody drive you home yeah. because that's pure alcohol. Right. I just had to go, well, how long does that take? Do I have to right. do it every day? <laughs> right. <laughs> and they said, no, we're going to keep you on the betadine because it's the first step of this process. If it doesn't go, then you go ethanol kind of thing and I, was like, yeah, right, I would have told him i wanted salt on the rim and a little, a little well, uh, you know I, a little right. lemon kind right. of thing <laughs> not, not betadine because you could just taste the iron in the bed mm. i could taste it it was just awful it was an awful thing Ugh. but eventually it did get down to where i was only taking three cc's of it because they had started me on 10 now i was down to three so it was closing up yeah. and i thought okay good we're almost done we're almost done kind of Make thing progress making progress and that's when they pulled out the catheter the following week and then they said we're not convinced that it's completely healed we're going to put another catheter in but we're going to start you on ethanol to completely seal this up hmm. we don't trust your body at this point because it's been doing all kinds of weird things the last six weeks right. we're going to make sure that it stays shut Wow. Said, all right all right fine so they put a new wire in this time it's more metal because apparently mm. ethanol will eat through silicon did not know that no, because it's know. so strong that mm. it will eat through silicon so um they put a metal wrapped uh catheter in so i could right. have all the alcohol i wanted right and, <laughs> and they said are you okay are you okay to drive i said i can call an uber if i need to and they said well we don't want you driving drunk <laughs> my first my first session was okay my second session was okay by the third session i said okay i don't think my body can take anymore because now it hurts to bend yeah. so i knew that it was scabbing over yeah kind of thing can you please remove it and they said one more week for good measure 
So I had it for another four weeks. I mean, a total of four weeks. And when they pulled it out, they basically said, you should be fine. But if this comes back, you have to come back to us. <sighs> and, I, and they said, there's nothing you can do because it's a genetic anomaly. Right. Your body is still going to react as if it needs to be there. It's going to try to grow a new one. You're crazy. I said, is it like a, a, what do you call it, a parasitic twin? <laughs> and they said, it's a genetic anomaly in that one spot on that one part of your liver. And I said, you know, I should crazy. be thankful. I should genuinely be thankful that it's not anything worse. Yeah, no, I agree. That it's just basically a huge water balloon that's caused all this inconvenience. Yeah. But it is what it is. It was hard not working out for six months. It's like I gained 25 pounds in all of this because I couldn't move. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't walk because, you know, knowing that I had this plastic thing up in my body cavity made it hard to just get in the mental state of taking long walks yeah. um, or bending, which my husband finally said, okay, now that you got this thing out, I can get my life back. Mm -hmm. I said, no, you still need to pick up stuff that I drop on the floor because yeah. <laughs> you got tired of picking things up off the floor. Yeah. Um, so here we are. I'm post, what is it, a week and a half now? Mm -hmm. And I can finally sleep on my back because that was the other part. I couldn't sleep on my back because it was right in the center of my back. Right. And I had to find inventive ways just to get sleep without yes. hitting that. Um, but I'm, I'm feeling stronger every single day. That's good. But I've resolved myself to the fact that this is something that I will continue to manage going forward. But at least... I had a great crew at the hospital. I had a great crew at my doctor's office and they were very easy to work with. But I also sensed that in, a, in my conversations with the nurses and the um, staff there, that there are patients that are just so bitter about medical care. Mm -hmm. Just they have expectations that the doctor can just go and zap it and it'll be gone. Right. Kind of thing. And they said, those are the patients that are just so hard to work with. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of having like your attitude, which is, it is what it is. You got to go deal with it. And here we go. Yeah. And it was kind of surprising to me that people were like that. And they said, oh, no, every day, every single day. I said, you know, I guess I'm the type that it's a situation. Yeah. You deal with it the best way you can. You can't have any other expectations. Yeah. Well, you solve the and, problem, right? You do, you do what they suggest. Right. And you just exactly. You just and it's a partnership. And like everything else, it's a partnership. Like you and I are like yeah. a partnership yeah. kind of thing. And same with my medical care. It's a partnership. I yeah. want to trust the people I give that to. And my friendships. I want to trust that you have my best interests at my in mind. Right. I want to trust, I want you to trust me to have your best interests in mind. Right. Um, I I I mean, I guess that's the thing is you live your life the way you want to be treated. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> and, and so it was, it was nice that it was reciprocated by great medical staff. Yeah, I agree with that. So, so let me ask you this. If you were somebody that's listening to this podcast, that's having those kinds of pains, that is um, not sure about what's going on with their body, that kind of thing, what advice would you give them? Because you've basically been through, I mean, for lack of a better term, you've been through the gauntlet, right? And it, yeah. and it all started back in 2017. So you now have six years of experiencing all this. Mm -hmm. What would you give somebody as far as advice 
about how to deal with their doctor, how to deal with the, you know, how to deal with modern medicine, period. I would first off, listen to your body. Your body is going to tell you everything it needs to know. You need to know. Your body is going to give you signals that you need to be aware. You need to be self-aware of what goes on in your body because yeah. you you live in it. You yeah. live in it every day. Um, the other part of that is being open with your doctors, with your caregivers, mm -hmm. because if, if you don't give them all the information, they can't make the right diagnosis or diagnose, give you the right tests to take. Right. Um, my partnership with my doctors were great because I was able to explain the pain, show them where it was. Yeah, there were some you know hiccups. Like when I said that it was under my chest, my doctor automatically thought it was my heart. Yeah. But he didn't understand that it was under the chest plate, the bone yeah. kind of thing. But, but that happens. And, you know, you got to understand they're human, too. And they're just going to take the information that you give them. And it's not going to be right all the time, but pretty darn close to it, because that's what they're there to do is to assess the situation and give you the best advice. Yeah. Um, ultimately, it's your choice which decision or which procedure to have, I, I was given three options. Yeah. One was just a no-go because there's yeah. no way they're going to crack my bones just to get to it. Right. And two, I knew there was a certain, a certain pain to having to inject myself intravenously every single day. Right. And thirdly, I went with the simplest one, which usually the simplest one is the easiest one and the easiest one to deal with. Yeah. But in this case, it didn't work for me. Yeah. So, you know, my doctor even said, you know what, option one is out. You can never go back to that because your body is not going to, it's going to reject anything else. Yeah. You have to go with this. So, you know, they, they talk it, they talk you through any procedures and what could, would, or might happen. So you're fully aware, listen, listen yeah. to the advice because at the end of the day, yes, ultimately your it's your decision what happens to your body. But you can only make an educated, um, ed educated decision when you're listening to all your options. Right. Kind of thing. So how important is it to ask questions? Very important. Don't take don't take what they say as the golden rule, because I, I think we were brought up thinking the doctors know it all and that yeah. you should just listen to the doctor. If it doesn't agree with what you're thinking, get a second opinion. Yeah. Go to another doctor or ask the questions, ask the hard questions, even yeah. if it gets annoyed with you, ask the hard questions, because ultimately they're there to make sure your health is, is on par and it's healthy. You're not making the wrong decisions kind of thing. I mean, luckily my doctors had the insight when I said I was going through the change, right. <laughs> my doctor's like, no, 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 that ship has sailed. You should not be overheating. You should not be this, that, and the other. She realized I was fighting an infection yeah. and she had a blood test to prove it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that was the thing was I appreciated the fact that they thought outside the box for me and was able to get the right diagnosis. Well, I think, well, I think the most important, and, and again, I'm, you have to understand, I'm, I'm, I love you, you know that, and I'm, you know, <laughs> emotionally tied to this, right? So mm -hmm. I'm not exactly, I'm not exactly, um, I'm, I'm not exactly objective here, but yeah. it seems to me that the key to this for you was making sure that you shared with your doctor, hey, I'm sleeping with ice packs. 
right? Because the the fact of the matter is, if you hadn't if you hadn't told them about that, they would have, have never known. run the test. They would have never right. You're just assuming that it's this, mm -hmm. right? And by bringing it up, it helped to get you diagnosed because if Correct. If, if you had walked out of there, there's no telling what kind of damage would have been done to your body. Exactly. You walked out of there without having that conversation with them. Exactly. So it, it's, it's, you got to find your honesty. You yeah. have to be very honest with the people who's going to work on your body. Yeah. Um, I think when you hold back, you're damaging yourself. You're not giving yourself the best care. And I think when you do that, you're not really respecting yourself. Yeah. If you withhold that kind of information, I honestly believed it was the change. <laughs> it was, I know it's funny. I think it's funny now because I honestly thought it was the change. And she, <laughs> knowingly just said that ship has sailed and you're never going to go through that again. Right. And, and just an innocent quip like that, they pick up on that stuff. Yeah. A good doctor will pick up on those quips. Well, I think, I think my biggest point is people I think are embarrassed to say anything like they're, they, they don't, like I, they're almost they're almost fearful that there's going to be more going on than what's really going on, so they don't say anything, right? Yeah, like my I, dad's I, generation, my yeah. dad's generation is really good at this kind of thing, right? Where oh they yeah, yeah. Share the self denial thing. Yeah, they don't share what's really going on because mm -hmm. whatever's really going on, they can just self medicate. Yeah, and that's right? the that's the household you and I grew up in was yeah. we self medicate, we do this, but it would come to the point where you we can't keep that information to ourselves Yeah, and, and sharing is caring yeah. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And I also believe that you do yourself a disservice yeah. by keeping those things to yourself. I have no filter when it comes to medical, either dental vision or, you know, regular medical nurses, doctors, specialists. I have no filter. There is no reason to have a filter with them. They right. need to know as much as they can about your situation. Yeah, I and, agree with that. And if you withhold that information, you're, like I said, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're not getting adequate care. So you can't blame anyone. Well, you could possibly be killing yourself, right? You could possibly Absolutely. be creating a, a complication that you can't come back from. And, exactly. You know, I, I, I think I shared this with you in 2018. I went to the emergency room at Palomar Hospital. I, yes, drove, you did. I drove myself there, right? My resting heart rate was 145 beats a minute. I had tachycardia, right? I walked in and they said, Why are you here? And I sort of tapped my chest and they took me back and patched me up. They thought I was having a heart attack. Turned out my blood sugar was 343. Oh, Jesus. Right? Way too high. Okay. I was yeah. full blown type 2 diabetic. And the doctor even looked at me and he goes, with a blood sugar like this, I can't believe you're still awake. Most people in your, in, in, most people would, would have just been, they'd be in a coma, they'd be out. Be in coma. Well, yeah, they'd just be not. out, right? You know, yeah. and I'm like, well, I don't know what to say, doc. And so they spent seven hours in the emergency room putting two full things of saline and five units of, of insulin in me, got my heart rate down to hundred beats a minute and sent me home. They were talking about keeping me for the night and I came out of my skin because I didn't want to, I didn't want to stay there. I didn't want to be in the hospital. I don't want to be in the hospital five more minutes, let alone another <laughs> night, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but, I get you. But it's, the thing is, I'm sort of, by, by doing that, 
I was basically violating my own, what I'm saying now, right? So yeah. like, that was five years ago, okay? And yes, it was 162 pounds, like all that kind of stuff, right? It was a long time ago, a lot of pounds ago. Right, right. The thing is, if I had it to do over again, I'm pretty sure I would I would admit myself. I'm pretty sure I'd let them hold me overnight. Just yeah, to make yeah. absolutely sure. Because when I came back the next day, and most people don't know this, when I came to the, when I went to the doctor the next day, the doctor took all my vitals and my resting heart rate was 135 beats a minute. And she said, wow. we can't help you. You're outside of our range. You got to go back to the emergency room. And I said, well, here's the problem. I'm going to go back to the emergency room. They're going to do the exact same thing they did before. And then I'm going to be back here tomorrow. Right. Maybe yep. with 125 beats a minute. I mean, come on. Right. I'm like, right, I right, right. don't want to do this thing again. Exactly. I, right. And so right. I, one of two things was happening. Either she took pity on me or she was literally concerned that I was not going to leave. Okay. But I right. advocated for myself and, and I'm glad I did, but I advocated for myself because I needed answers. I didn't get any answers from the emergency room. Right. Mm -hmm. I needed answers from the physician. So she goes into the into the doctor that runs the the clinic that I went to. And she says, I, you know, this is what's going on. And she said, put him in room six. I'll get there. I'll go. I'll look at him as soon as I can. She comes in and instantly, instantly, my blood pressure dropped. Instantly, I relaxed because she had the answers and she had a bedside manner that was just classic. Like it was perfect for me. Right, right, right. right. And she said, we, we've got this. We're going to get a handle on it. It's going to be fine. Here's what we're going to do. You're type two diabetic. You're 51 years old. And I said, doc, what do I need to do? She said, you need to lose weight. I said, doc, I've lost 104 pounds. And she goes, well, you need to lose more and you need to do it now. Right. So in the next 90 days, I lost 51 pounds, right? I lost 58 yeah. altogether, right? And and when I went back to see her 90 days later, she was like, look, you know, you, you cured yourself. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. And we want to hire you. Yeah. And I'm like, what? And she goes, we want to hire you. I'm like, doc, I, I own a real estate. I own one of the largest real estate offices in North America. I've been in real estate for 26 plus years. What are you going to hire me to do? She goes, we want to hire you. We're going to actually create a new position at Palomar Pomerado Health, want to hire you to go and talk to our diabetes support groups because we've had a conversation. And the conversation that we've had with the higher ups is we can't find anybody like you. We can't find anybody who's gone through what you've gone through. And 90 days later, out of our tens of thousands of patients, we can't find anybody that 90 days later comes back and naturally lost 51 pounds. Most of the people that that have the health scare you have, 90 days later, they come back and they're heavier, Mike. They're in worse shape than they were when they went in the emergency room. Wow. Okay. Wow. And I'm like, okay. okay. And she goes, listen, she goes, we haven't been able to find anybody like you. You're like a unicorn, right? She said, she said, we're what we want to do is we want to hire you to go talk to our diabetes support groups because we believe you can inspire people to do what you did. Right. Okay. Right. And what that did, Aggie, was it started something in me that I, I and I think this podcast is an extension of it. I really do. Right. Because I've I've shared my story, just like you shared your story. I've shared mm -hmm. my story with so many people. And 
and seen their lives change. I've seen them take their health more seriously. I've seen them ask more questions. I've seen them be more for come, you know, be more um um forthcoming. Forthcoming. That's it. There it is. There's the word. Thank you. There, <laughs> there, I've seen them be more forthcoming with their with their doctors, right? Right. And and some of them have told me that it's it's that I've been their inspiration. Okay. That's Good what I you. believe you are. Okay. I believe <laughs> that people from hearing your story, I believe that they will be more forthcoming. I believe that they will ask more questions. I believe that they will, if they're hurting, they'll go see a doctor, right? Like if they're driving across the railroad tracks, they're going to go see the doctor because they're in pain, right? Right. That kind of thing. Because, you know, that takes some real courage. It really does. Well, and, and again, I, that, that's what I was saying. It was like, you have to listen to your body. Yeah. Because most of us don't. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people go, oh, that was just my Achilles. Let me just go stretch it yeah. out. I'll be fine. Well, well it's like you said, it's, it's like you said before, I'll just take some Tylenol. I'll do this. I'll whatever. It'll be fine. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I think that I believe that happens way too much. You yes. Know? And and because of it, that's why I feel like this is such a big deal, what you're doing. And I cannot thank you enough. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Is there anything else you want to you want to cover? Um, I think we're good for now, unless you have other topics you want to talk about, because we can talk about anything until I know. we could be here for out. three days, you and me. Exactly. And, you know, that might not look good for our, I know. our partners. I know. And, <laughs> and just know, just know that I love you and I'm proud of you. OK, thank you. Thank well, same here. I love you, too. Thank you and I'm so glad you're doing, doing this. this. Thank I'm you glad so you're much doing for this. doing this. I really do appreciate it. And I know that you're going to have an impact on people. I know it. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor. Smash that subscribe button. Tell your friends, family and coworkers about our program. And wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.